Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Hello. Hey, everyone. And we are finally delving into the first feature-length film of David Lynch, Eraserhead. Um, this is not about the My Hero Academia character, as far as I am aware, but Chris, correct me if I am wrong. Um, you're technically not wrong, though he is named after the film, so, I mean, tomato, tomato at this point. <laughs> is he really named after the film? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there is only one Eraserhead in this world. Um... But, uh, I guess we should just jump right into it. Uh, I think I had a question about something, but now I have completely forgotten what it is. Uh, Chris, leave us in. What's the movie? All right. So, first off, let's, uh, let's start with what is the film about? The film is about a man named Henry who learns that his, uh, one-time girlfriend is pregnant. So they, uh, they get married, they give birth to the child, and... They struggle with the the new experience of being parents to a child. That is that is what Eraserhead is about. Um, second, what happens in Eraserhead is a totally different scenario that I don't even know how to succinctly put into a synopsis or paragraph. So I feel that we will slowly dive into it as we go uh, go through our discussion here, but. Let's just say a lot of stuff happens inside of 90 minutes with that um, very thin plot synopsis. Um, so first, uh, my question, I want everyone to uh, just kind of give their w- simple sentence, one simple one sentence reaction to what it was they just witnessed. Chris? So it is a movie about sex and family in the most absurd David Lynch way you can do it. Corey? Uh, I would say this is, uh, to paraphrase, I guess, from my Letterboxd review, this is David Lynch's first foray into comedy, uh, semicolon, this is art, period. (laughs) I would like to lead in with um, stating a David Lynch quote that is at the very end of the documentary Eraserhead Stories, which is found on the Criterion disc and is on the Criterion channel, for anyone curious. It is that in all the years since Eraserhead first came out in 1977, no critic or viewer has ever come close to interpreting the film the way he (laughs) interprets it. (laughs) (laughs) What is more David Lynch than that that one line? Like, like what? Because every time I watch the film... That, you know, Chris, your reaction is very similar to mine, is that it's it's about the fear of fatherhood, the fear of being a parent and the struggles that go into having this family unit. And it deals with, um, you know, the, the tensions that grow between husband and wife when there's a child in there. It's, it's about family and the fear of that family. Uh, that fear mostly manifests because the baby is a fucking monster for anyone who has seen the film. The baby is this weird, bizarre thing wrapped up in gauze. Um, but no, you know, no matter how hard I watch this movie, like these are the only things that my brain tries to come up with. And (laughs) no, it's not even close to how David Lynch interprets it. Like, before he dies, I like I want him to pass away and there to be a secret book with him saying how he feels about all of his movies because 
it's against his code. David Lynch never explains his movies. He believes that having everyone's own interpretation is paramount to the film watching experience and that everything that he intends to be in the film is there. But still, I just want to get that insight into the man's mind. Like, what is he thinking or seeing when he was making and writing these films? Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, I read that book like, uh, with the whole essay, and that was one of like the things that stuck out to me, because you have said that several times. To me, when, it, when we were talking about David Lynch, that like he doesn't like to explain his movies, but I didn't really understand to what level that was in terms of like just the the themes of the movies or what he was trying to convey that stuff makes sense but then like this interviewer asked him about the child in in the interview and he's just like i will not delve into that and it, like, the question the interviewer <laughs> asked is very simply how did you make it like yeah. what tools and art materials did you use to make the baby and he's like nope and like i guess the implication the implication to me from david lynch was like this thing might as well have just fallen out of the sky. And uh, I was blessed with this living being that, uh, well, I mean, this is a, a podcast where we talk all about spoilers, so I guess I'll just say that uh, I just mutilate to hell while um, Jack Nance cuts through the gauze, uh, revealing the entire body of the baby and then stabs a, a lung or something. Um, it's like, what a what a hell of a scene. <laughs> I mean, it- in that scene in particular, it's almost as if the gauze was, in fact, the body. When he cuts open the gauze, he's ripping open the body of the baby, mm-hmm. and you're seeing all of the internal organs laid bare. That shit is crazy. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do when we talk about these films is to break it up into kind of pieces, because these films, they are, by their very nature, difficult to to talk about. But there there can be a fun way to to try to go about them, and I wanted to try to explore that. Um, first being, I want, I want everybody to talk about pros. What did they like about the film? Um, not so much, you know, what they thought of the film and like give like a review of the film, but like what elements of the film did you like? Um, what spoke to you? What, uh, impacted you in some sort of way? Uh, Corey, why don't you start? Uh, well, as I mentioned, the, the baby scene is probably just a very big pro in it just for how... Um, both weirdly horrifying and satisfying at the same time that that scene kind of felt. Um, and I think the satisfaction comes from, like, well, more reviewing it. I don't know how how weird you want to get. Um, satisfaction comes from, like, Jack Nance finally being rid of this thing that provided such a, a burden on him for so long. But, um... More broadly, like I loved the ambiance that Lynch set up. He mentions that he filmed like exclusively at night because this is a very night-based movie, um, and that like we talked last time, that it took five years for him to make this movie, and that's just extremely fascinating. Where he says uh, he walks into the door, and then uh, one and a half years later, filming-wise, he walks through the door. <laughs> Um, just the, uh, the production of this seems highly, highly fascinating. Um, real quick, that quote, is that in the booklet? Yeah, that's in the booklet. Okay. Cause that's, a, that's one of the stories that he tells in Eraserhead stories. I didn't read the booklet. I watched the documentary. Uh, I read the booklet and I, I did not watch the documentary. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked this as, um, 
just a a thing to look at because it is largely silent and like i would be fine if this was just um a silent film cut out some of the more important talking bits or retool them somehow um just to make it so there is no dialogue but um even as it is i can definitely understand how this became a cult classic and um how it became so beloved over the years and like immediately hated and <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> Chris, what about you? Pros, what did you like about the film? So I just I just loved the I mean the atmosphere's big takeaway. It's just so grimy and gritty and light and dark and this just endless industrial soundscape and visual like just everything's run down and depressing and then there's the line the one um mary's father has like oh yeah 40 years ago this was all country and you're just like you just like feel the gravity that is the common in like the commentary of urban blight and like industrial waste of the, of the especially the 70s i think really famous for just like if david lynch spent any time in philadelphia which he did it was like a city famous for just being coated in like a layer of soot everywhere um so and like run down abandoned factories and all sorts of things that you just see like visually omnipresent in the film um and squaring that with what is supposed to be a father and his baby and his learning how to be a father and failing at being a father um or not wanting to be a father and wanting to be i mean there's a million interpretations for the ending of the movie um but i think overall like the big pro and why it's so so loved is is i think you know if you watch the movie and then you want to make a film you're going to have a tough time getting the visuals of the race out of your mind and you're going to wind up even by accident borrowing something from it though i think most of the directors who have scenes and segments that that feel and look a lot like a racer head it's very deliberate and they would happily own up to it um which speaks i think to kind of the, the cult legacy of the film um the cons are that i mean it's like i like that it's silent but at at times you're like it's such a show don't tell movie and then it's a show and think about what you're seeing because even by showing you you're not going to figure it out kind of film um so you know a con is that if you're not going in in approaching it with that mindset it's going to leave you probably just maybe probably leave you liking the atmosphere the soundscape the soundtrack but i think the movie itself in terms of the story in the um, characters, you're not going to leave really kind of feeling anything about what happened on the screen, which is probably why it was reviled, or not reviled, but why a lot of people did not like it when it first came out. Yeah, so uh, let's see. Things I liked about it, I love the lady in the radiator. Her, her simple existence in the film as completely unexplained and... Like, my brain, no matter how many hoops I try to jump, I cannot figure out how the lady in the radiator really connects to anything. Um, I love how David Lynch came up with the lady in the radiator, like, well after the film had begun being made. He was just like, oh, this is a cool thing, and put it in there. But it means something to him, and that's that's just amazing. Um, the song, uh, In Heaven, Everything is Fine, it's classic in my opinion it's it's just absolutely such a classic track i love i love all the stuff with the man and the planet uh basically i love the weirdest aspects of this film um the stuff with the man and the planet where 
uh, that's Jack Fisk. Uh, speaking of Jack Fisk in the last episode, um, who, who, who I learned actually he was one of the ones who helped donate money to get this film being made. He was working two art department jobs on feature feature uh, films at the time, and so he donated one of his paychecks to David. He kept one for himself and donated the other one to Eraserhead. Uh, given the time frame, that's probably Terrence Malick's Badlands was probably one of them, for all I know. Um, and Sissy Spacek also contributed money. It's just so cool. But I love how the opening of the film, in my mind, is this super, super surreal depiction of a couple having sex that, that that's what I see. It's you're seeing the act of sex through Henry's libido and what ends up looking like the baby is his sperm um, that you see shoot out and float from his mouth into um, a small puddle. And I love how each of these images connects to things later on in David Lynch's work that I, I hope everybody here remembers um, so they can pick them out later on. I just, I, I, I love how surreal and strange all of this is. Um, I love the fact that David Lynch built all of the sets by himself. You know, he had help, but he himself built the sets. That's why it took five years. The, the Chevron floor that you see later on in Twin Peaks, um, the lady in the radiator stage, all of it, the... I just love how you can feel every inch of David Lynch's being going into this film. And, and Chris, you are correct. He not only did spend time in Philadelphia, um, he's mentioned many times, not just in Eraserhead stories, but in other documentaries and interviews that I've read, that Eraserhead was birthed. He doesn't remember when he came up with the idea for Eraserhead, and he doesn't even remember what the initial idea was that sparked Eraserhead. But the 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 ambiance, the the atmosphere, the vibe of Eraserhead was born from his time in Philadelphia, and he feels exactly the way that you described it. It's just this dirty, nasty, terrible, horrible, crime-ridden city that he was so thankful to get away from. Um, I, I I love so much of this film um, for everything that it says about David Lynch and all the abstract ways that it's spoken. Um, so Chris kind of jumped the gun there, but that was where I was wanting to go was, was what are some of the cons? Like what, what do, what did you not like about the film? Um, so Corey, why don't you go ahead and tell us what, what you didn't like about the film? Cause I think that it, it, no film is perfect. And especially with David Lynch's films, because they are more art projects than anything else there's going to be things that that everybody dislikes and i find that a fascinating part of the discussion just like any like actual art discussion i mean uh like a lot of david lynch's um i guess i haven't watched many many of his things but i guess a lot like a lot of david lynch's reputation um it's just relatively an obtuse film where you are not sure of what is going on uh, at all times, and or like, why is it going on? Like, uh, as you said, the lady in the radiator. I didn't really understand that, and I didn't actually know that she was uh, a lady in in the radiator until uh, I read the booklet where they referred to the lady in the radiator, and I'm like, oh, she was in a radiator. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, 
I mean, I liked I liked the film obviously, but um, in terms of what I didn't like from it, I think it was just um, the information as presented was not as uh, satisfying as I felt it could be. There, it wasn't really one particular aspect of it. It's just the collection of it that um, that was not all there. I guess I don't really know how to describe it. I think I think I understand what you mean. that. that you didn't have an issue with any particular elements, but when it was all said and done, you felt that there was more that it could have given you. Um, maybe not spoon fed on a platter, but just narratively that, that there was more that could have been done. Right. Yeah. And I guess going back to the previous conversation or the previous podcast about, um, about whether David Lynch should do animation or not. Like I feel this could be a wonderful piece of animation where, um, it could be something like, well, maybe not quite like Paprika, but like have those kinds of images going on, especially in the first part of the film where you kind of see Jack Nance's head and then you see what I assume is uh, a representation of his brain or intestines or something. I didn't really understand what that was, and I don't know any anatomy well enough to, to make a good guess of that. But um, like being able to see that in animation I think would have been really stunning. Not that it wasn't stunning as it was, um, but I think it could have been much more as a, as an animation art piece rather than um, as a live action art piece. Even though like I think the live action version of it was very good, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, are you talking the thing that came out of his mouth? Uh, did it come out of his mouth? I thought it was just like superimposed over his face. Well, he opens his mouth and it kind of floats over his body. Oh, okay. It, it, Okay, yeah, that's the thing that I think represents his sperm. Hmm. <laughs> there, 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 are no, there are no wrong interpretations. That's the beauty of it. So, <laughs> like, say whatever you want to say. Like, whatever you think happened is what you think happened, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, uh, so, so, like, when I saw that scene, I assumed, uh, or my, I, I don't know, I assumed, I, my interpretation of it was that, like, it was his brain leaving his body and like he was um not uh not elevating to another plane of existence but rather like wanting to escape his uh his existence and like he just kept being pulled back by um that that family the weird uh leaking turkey or chicken thing that was going on the uh his soon-to-be wife his soon-to-be child um just pulled back by all of these things and like uh i didn't really get the uh the fear of family part from it i got more of an interpretation of um here are the worst aspects of his life presenting to us uh through a radiator i don't know <laughs> speaking of the leaking turkey that's the scene that i was alluding to in the previous podcast that i feel that the amputee was a special effects test for oh um that's so cool. I fucking love the turkey with moving its legs up and down all creaky and it just <laughs> bleeding out. Like it, it, it looks to me as, as like I interpret it as a grotesque version of a woman giving birth. Um, cause he's at his, his, his girlfriend ex's, um, house and, he doesn't quite know it yet, but he's about to find out that she's pregnant, and the, these are all just these crazy symbolic ways that they're trying to tell him, like, this is what's happening. It's just, it's so fucking gross. 
<laughs> but uh, let's see. Some of the things that I dislike about the film, I do dislike. I do dislike how silent it is. There, there's moments in the middle of the film where it it starts to lose me because of the silent nature of the film, where it's just him wandering and walking, uh, the baby crying, and them just kind of staring at it. When I first watched it, that bugged me a lot more than it does now. I This is like my fourth or fifth watch of this film. Um, so, like, yeah, the first time I watched it, that, that really kind of bothered me, how, just how slow it felt. And it only felt slow because there was so little dialogue. Watching it now, the pace is actually pretty nice. But because it's so, so silent and, oh, David Lynch... And Alan Splat, they did the sound design and the the score for this. Such a mood. The whole soundtrack is such a goddamn mood. Um, that I really kind of appreciate that more, but it's still my least favorite part of the uh, of the film. Other than that, I've grown to pretty much love most of the film. Um, God, I'm just I'm thinking about the mom hitting on Henry. <laughs> He's like, what the fuck? And then uh, the daughter's just like, what are you doing, mom? And it's so gross the way she's trying to kiss him. It's the most, like, unromantic way that you could possibly imagine someone trying to kiss you. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add, Chris? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest the biggest thing, um, I think, is, is there is so many just long sequences of it being silent, um, where you really have to keep your eye on what keep number one keep your eye on the screen, but number two, it just like feel makes it feel really slow. And I and I kind of had my mind race away at times um, and think about other things just because there was no dialogue to pull me back in or no real sound of sorts that was going to pull me back in um, in certain certain parts of the movie. Um, that's one of those things that you can definitely expect. The more and more you watch it, you're you just don't notice increasingly and uh, because and you're actually maybe paying attention more to what's going on during the, these long drawn out silent parts but um who's i gonna say um but i think on a first viewing that's one of the things especially if you're watching it you know kind of on the couch late at night it's like one of those parts that i could just envision someone being like oh yeah i was watching a racerhead but i fell asleep like halfway through <laughs> Because there's like no sound. It's just this like gentle humming, like a white noise machine for like ten minutes. <laughs> I think that's one of the interesting um, things that we're we're differentiating on. Like I liked the silent aspect of the movie, obviously, because I said I wanted to be, I wanted to have less dialogue, more silence, I guess. Um, well, I mean, not necessarily more silence, like maybe more in the sound because I'm the soundtrack. Um, but like I liked the moments when we were just left with this ambiance of a industrial area where all you hear is random noises that you aren't really sure where they come from, but eventually uh, they just become white noise as they are for Jack Nance's character. I have no idea what his character's name is. Henry. Henry. Okay, that's right. Henry. I totally knew that. I forgot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I liked those moments when they're when you're just like left with that. Uh, that time and that noise it reminds it reminds me of like the blues brothers when they go to uh i forget whose apartment it was but that's like right next to the l and you hear it 
commercial like every 10 minutes. It's like, well, the rent's cheap, so who cares? Um, but I think that just like feeds more into the aspect that these this is just the worst part of Henry's life, and he's just dealing with it all. And like maybe because we never see him at work, like we know he has a job, he mentions his job a couple times. But like maybe because we never see him at work, because those are the times where he is sadly the happiest, because he doesn't have to deal with all of this other stuff. That's that's another thing about a razorhead is he is there. There's those parts of the movie where it's you can definitely tell the guy's get a painter and like that's his main squeeze. But he's how he rationalizes everything he does in terms of filmmaking because there's just so many scenes where it's like oh yeah this is just a surrealistic painting and he just has to have this guy like he has to have henry slightly move so that it looks like a movie <laughs> like the scene where he's standing in the elevator you're just waiting for the elevator doors to close you're just looking <laughs> at the, the the stage and the set that david lynch built he put time into building it in a very specific way for a reason you know, he was live actioning his painting. So you're going to sit there and you're going to watch him stand in that elevator for just a little bit because you got to soak in all of David Lynch's hard work. <laughs> that scene did feel like it was forever. I was like, so the elevator broken? Is it not going to It's not gonna go? Is this just another aspect of his terrible life? <laughs> oh, one of the, 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 the interesting discussion here, that this is coming from more of a, a meta perspective uh, from my point of view, uh, having seen all of his work multiple times, Eraserhead is the only one of his films where I did and do still slightly feel slightly bored by the long breaks of silence and the very slow meditative pacing of some of the scenes. This is a staple of David Lynch's work. Um, we're going to see this a lot going forward, especially when we get to Twin Peaks. We're going to see it a lot, a lot, a lot. And I adore I adore it so much in every single one of these instances, especially in Twin Peaks. Just the way that it's done in various instances in Twin Peaks. I adore sitting there and waiting and watching and nothing happening because... It's either funny or engaging or just kind of beautiful in a strange way. Eraserhead is the only one where it doesn't, that those scenes kind of don't work for me. I, I think that's an interesting aspect, and I'm going to be p trying to pay attention to that from Corey and Chris as we move on into those different, uh, different works and those different examples of where he has these long pauses or these long takes. Because I, I think that's interesting from my perspective, and I don't, I can't quite pinpoint why it is, what exactly it is about Eraserhead that does that. Maybe it is that the soundtrack is mostly a white noise hum um, for most of it. Maybe that, maybe that's it. I'm not entirely sure. Dune, the silent. I mean, have you watched Dune more than once to know how silent it is? Um, I, I've, I, I have watched Dune many times when I was a kid but only one time as an adult. And it is not particularly silent, though, I don't know. I, I was about to say something that is an opinion on a portion of the film, and we should save that for that particular <laughs> podcast. Um, it, it does have these David Lynch's to it. It, do, it. it does have the silent moments, but it's better saved for that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I just... 
r- randomly thinking, I think it's interesting how he has already solidified what is kind of like his family here. So Jack Nance, he's going to be our Takashi Shimura through this um, up until a certain point when he tragically passed away under mysterious circumstances. Um, that's a that's an interesting thing. You, I recommend looking up how Jack Nance passed away. That is tragic and bizarre all in its own right. Uh, but he's going to be our Takashi Shimura here. And so I'm looking forward to having him being pointed out or pointing out where he was because he's not, he's not very frequently in a, uh, a lead or very noticeable role, uh, except for a racer head. So I think that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. That is what I was going to ask at the beginning. Is Jack Nance the Takashi Shimura or Toshiro Mifune? And you've answered that question and I have, uh, it was thankfully addressed, even though I completely forgot what I was going to ask it. (laughs) I think that was what I was going to to address. Why, that's what I was thinking of when you were speaking, and I was like, I need to remember to say that, and then I forgot. <laughs> is uh, is Kyle McLaughlin our other our uh, Mifune? Uh, I do believe that Kyle McLaughlin is our Mifune, though they did not uh, collaborate nearly as much as I wish they would have. Uh, I don't think anyone can. Uh, well, certainly not as much as you wish, because the the two as a pair, at least in the couple episodes of Twin Peaks that I've seen, are fantastic. Um, yeah. And Kyle McLaughlin is just like in general fantastic, even like in the Thirty Rock and Portlandia that I've seen. Um, but like, I don't think anyone could have anyone in this modern era could ever produce as much as Mifune and Kurosawa did. No, sadly, yeah, the only uh, Kyle McLaughlin joints we get are our Dune and Twin Peaks. Uh, Laura Dern is more of a Mifune character, cons- considering how often they've worked together. So uh, that that could be. That there could be go. Laura Dern is the Mifune character. I'm always satisfied with uh, a Laura Dern as a Mifune comparison. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Laura Dern. When we get to those movies, and I have I'm... to have to park the cow outside when we do her. <laughs> did did you you remember when he um, was like uh, supporting her nomination and award oh, yeah. winning awards with the cow? Yeah. Well, she she wasn't winning awards. He was trying yeah. to get nominated. Yeah, yeah for, he was trying to get yeah. for Inland Empire. So that'll be like the second to the last thing that we get to when we get to bring up the cow again. Yeah, he just he just sat outside with a giant for your consideration poster and and a cow. Like that was it. He was just sitting there with a cow and a giant for your consideration poster. I love this man. I love this man dearly. All right. Well, since I'm running out of things that I was going to bring up or just plain forgetting what I was going to bring up, um, does anyone have any any final thoughts? Uh, particularly, I want to kind of address how they see this in the scope of the filmography of David Lynch, having seen now the short films and now Eraserhead. Chris? This really, I, we definitely observed it, saw it with some of the um, shorts, um, especially the grandmother and the amputee. Like, this is a lot of the concepts he was toying with, kind of coming, really coming together in a full-length film. Um, took five years to make, so probably the idea had been incubated for a couple years before that. Um, and so I think, you know, he was really working towards making this film. Um, but at the same time, I think you can... This is like almost a bridge between David Lynch, the painter who discovered a camera and decided to do stuff with it, to David Lynch, the 
um, kind of more trained filmmaker and, you know, is able to get his own vision and his own voice into films while not being, I don't want to say too experimental, but I mean, like, I think Eraserhead, for being an experimental film, it doesn't hit you on the head with, like, totally outrageous ways of making a film and presenting a film. It's what's presented within the confines of making a film that's absurd in this. And I think that sets the tone for David Lynch going forward is that he's making structural, you know, structural films. Like he's not some amateur just throwing crazy ideas out there, but he's throwing crazy ideas out there with, um, with the backing of, of making a cohesive film. And I think it kind of comes together in, um, from the goes from the shorts into a, a razor head. Totally. Quick side note: the script was only twenty-one pages long. Yeah, I was about to say, getting the getting the uh, book like say it was like twenty-one pages, and then he just kind of expounded upon that, added dialogue because at that point it was just twenty-one pages of silent film. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the beautiful part is just like Chris said, he's not just throwing shit at the screen, but at the same time he kind of is. It's like like when he's painting like when anyone is painting you have this idea and you're building the painting and then another a new idea comes to you and you figure out a way to incorporate it into the painting but it all belongs um you can definitely feel some other films is definitely a throw shit at the wall and see what sticks approach here he's coming up with ideas and throwing them in at any given time during the making of the 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 movie but it feels so cohesive and i think that speaks to his vision it it is undeniably his film. You cannot you cannot watch this and think, oh well, this this could have been this other director or this could have been made by anybody else whatsoever. No, it's it's David Lynch's film and his vision, and that vision is so strong that I think it it, it binds it together in really interesting and very cohesive ways, even if it is. You know, the lady in the radiator coming out three years into the filmmaking for the first time. Um, it's amazing stuff. Corey, what about you? Uh, what was the original question? <laughs> uh, kind of your overall thoughts, any additional thoughts on the film, and tying it into how you know you perceive this as part of his filmography, like a stepping point from his short films, and what that kind of feels to you for the future. Right. Yeah, I think this is um, a. I mean, if this wasn't Lynch's first feature-length film, I think it would be a very good uh, introduction into Lynch in terms of a feature-length film because it kind of has all all of the aspects of um, uh, some strong theme going throughout the whole thing and uh, great character work with Jack Nance. Uh, well, not just Jack Nance, but. Um, or with Henry, but also with Henry's wife, whose name I also don't remember. Um, and I, uh, I also liked the uh, grandmother cameo of the Garrick and Quiggs at the at the side of Henry's uh, bedside table. Um, and I think the baby character, um, not Baby Yoga, but I would call this like maybe Baby Alien from Alien. Um, <laughs> Proto Baby Yoda. It's in my head now. It yeah. won't leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I liked that uh, depiction of it as sort of this um, deform, not like deformed, like a uh, uh, well, like literally an alien that you are expected to care for as a child, and like the 
the wife character wants this uh, this child to be cared for, and um, Henry obviously wants it to be cared for, but he's just, like, driven to the brink by it, and um, cucks it up, as I described earlier, in uh, the best scene of the film. Um, but I do mean that this film is a comedy genuinely, besides the... Uh, um, like the weird moments with baby alien uh like especially with the scenes with the father and mother and the dancing turkey those scenes were legitimately funny uh, even as i was like raising my eyebrow not knowing what was going on but also it, it was just like the uh physical comedy of it all was just incredible and the the, the visuals of seeing whatever the heck was on screen was just uh yeah, make no mistake, David Lynch is very funny. A lot of his works have comedy mixed into it. Um, one of the things that I'll probably forget to mention when we do Wild at Heart is that was one of uh, Roger Ebert's biggest dislikes of David Lynch was how he made everything so funny, but he was so brutal and candidly violent at one turn and then so funny at the next Roger Ebert really disliked that he felt that it made light of violence, which is not what Lynch is doing at all, but it is off putting. Um, yeah, no, David Lynch is very, very funny. And this film is also very, very funny. The comedy is entirely, uh, intentional. Uh, Corey, did Dana watch this with you? No, she would probably not like this at all. Oh, but but that would have been so much fun to see <laughs> to get her reaction. I know. We and Skag watched Jugas and the Black Messiah. Which was amazing. It was. Um, though also with, with Eraserhead, I think like reading the booklet of it provides this great insight into Lynch's person, not in terms of filmmaking, but like in terms of creating these interpersonal relationships. Um and I guess thankfully for the art that he created being in such a situation with both his upbringing and the uh, right place, right time with the what is it, the American Society of Filmmaking People. I don't remember what it's called. The American Film Institute. Okay. You guys guess the AFI? AFI. <laughs> um, but like being in the right place at the right time, being able to make these films... Um, and getting the money that he needed just through, like, oh, this person came in, came onto the film, and this person knows this person who is married to this person who happens to be Sissy Spacek and is just giving you money. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely a very, very lucky white boy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Eraserhead is probably the purest Lynch film. This is everything that he ever wanted to say or do, in one film, and we're going to see echoes of this throughout the rest of his films. No matter how drastically different they get from this point on, you're still going to, to, to have echoes of Eraserhead floating through everything. And one of the interesting things that I believe is the more you watch his work, later works act as keys to earlier work. Uh, Twin Peaks The Return being the ultimate key that unlocks additional elements of all of his films. Um, so it, it's it's interesting in that regard that this is kind of the film that informs his work going forward in very abstract ways, but his later films can link back and kind of open up this film a little bit more. Uh, I love it, surrealism. 
It's so cool, man. <laughs> but uh, I can't think of anything else to ask or to talk about. So if everybody's good, I think we're good here. Yeah, any uh, closing thoughts from Chris? Chris? My closing thoughts are, as always with um, a film, you can either read everything you want about it before, or um, you can go in blind. And um, if it's a great film, you'll, you'll appreciate it, enjoy it all the same. With Eraserhead, you can read whatever the hell you want before you watch it, and you will be thoroughly unprepared for what you're going to watch. <laughs> like, like someone could give you a a 12 page breakdown, bullet points of each scene, what each scene means, and you'll watch it and be like, "That is not what this seems." Every single time, it's just mm-hmm. you're going to have a different experience than anybody else had watching it. Um, you might hate it. Um, it's a grotesque at points. It's definitely absurd. Um, and as we've discussed, it's a, you know can take you out of it with how silent it is at times and the gentle humming that might put you to sleep. But um, it's really when you get into like films, when the, you cross that line, when films become more like art projects, I think this is one of the foremost films in that category where it's you know in, it's it's a fully realized artistic vision um, as much as it is a film that you're meant to sit down for 90 minutes and be entertained by. I mean, I think if you even read this, the script or even, well, I don't know if Lynch even has a treatment for this, uh, a treatment being like a three page summary of the film, um, you would not get the same experience or, uh, analysis out of the film. If you just watch it. Yeah. You just gotta watch it, man. Erase your head. It's a hell of a drug. Yeah. Uh, all right, so where can we find you two on the internet? I'm on the Twitter at uh, Antonius Pius. And you can find me on Twitters at Gokufi. And you can also find me at YouTube at uh, Cup Cups of Night Films. And? Oh, yeah. And you can also join me in my movie adventures on Letterboxd at Gokufi as well. That's, there we go. That's a big one, man. <laughs> All right, so you can find me on Twitter. Um, wait, nope, I don't need to do that yet. Um, I'll be, ta- or we'll take a short break here, and I'll be back with Ink to talk about, uh, oh, Ink and Basil to talk about Yua Kakuru. We are back. Ink and Basil have joined me. What's up? Awesome, awesome cast it. That's not the name of this podcast, <laughs> but um, we are here to talk about uh, Iwa Kakeru, Climbing Girls, which is also the Iwa Kakeru translates to rock hanging. Um, this is another entry into the bag sports anime canon, I would say, Ink. Uh, mediocre sports anime canon. Yeah, I guess that is that is a point I was I was going to bring up during this podcast because that most of the things that we've watched that are bad have not really been that bad. It's just kind of been niggling or mediocre or like there there we have not watched a Walkire romance is what I'm saying. <laughs> we did watch uh, the the stupid jet ski anime. That was bad. Right. That was really bad. That wasn't. I mean, that was still like typical Moe girl anime. Thus bad. 
I was actually surprised at how not bad this show actually was. Yeah, this was uh, surprisingly okay, uh, all things considered. But um, you know what made it bad is it wasn't as bad as I wanted it to be. <laughs> there, there were moments that if it were the entire show, it could have been the worst thing imaginable. But they didn't do that, and I was like, "Aw, <laughs> you're, you're not going to go here or there." I mean, come on, you're not living down to my expectations. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, occasionally the show would get kind of wild, but I was more impressed at how many times it could have gone wild, and it didn't. Yeah, this show is... I like to just get right quick. The show is about this girl named Konomi, who was a uh, former gamer. She played a lot of puzzle games, and she like even won a lot of competitions, but she wanted to give it up because she basically um, was spending too much time gaming and like not enough time doing literally anything else, school, uh, I assume essential bodily functions like using the restroom or eating or whatever either. Um, but she gave gaming up, and then she found this, this school. She goes to high school, she found this school, and uh, they have a climbing club, which like... The, the rock climbing with the um, plastic holdy things where you climb up uh, climb up the wall. Uh, which brings the question that I have for a lot of sports anime, which is how the heck do they afford like just a rock climbing wall in their school and how, uh, how interested are people in rock climbing that this is a luxury that this school can have? I had the same thought and I, I do like that the show only has like one wall or one set of walls and then Three quarters of the way through the season, they make it a point to say, oh, hey, uh, the president approved funding for the speed wall. (laughs) Wow, I remembered that. Um, (laughs) Way more than I thought I would ever commit to memory about the show. Uh, But yeah, like so it actually showed a progression of like allocation of funds for this niche Mm -hmm. club. Because they're winning. Yeah, all that. I just kind of assumed that the president girl happens to have like a really rich family and they just donated the money for the wall. To, to keep their daughter happy that could be uh, she does seem kind of like a rich girl type character but though we never really got a look into any of their personal lives outside of rock climbing besides Konami who is just a former gamer and that's all we learn mm. well maybe there'll be more seasons and then I don't need a, I don't know if I don't want to watch another season of this uh, but anyway there are a couple other characters in this series. Uh, June is the other uh, fellow first year. She is a seasoned rock climber who has been training since middle school, and she is very good. Um, Sayo Yokosuba is the president of the climbing club. She uh, they like there are a lot of people with nicknames in the climbing club, or not in the climbing club, like in this uh, niche of climbing as they go to competitions. And she is known as the princess of. Uh, I don't remember if it is lead or leg. But I assume it's League. Um, and then the final character is Nonoka, who is, uses her flexibility to grab holds, which I copped all this information directly from Wikipedia and did not remember any of it. <laughs> um, but as we go throughout the show, we basically see Konomi's growth of uh, novice at rock climbing to learning, not only learning more about rock climbing and its techniques, but also gaining the endurance required to rock climb, which was, like, my immediate complaint about the show, was that she is a, uh, she was a professional gamer, it seems, and then she went straight into this extremely physical activity and seemed to have no issue doing it. Like, after the first rock climb, she was able to immediately do a second rock climb, and there was no questions about that. What What is she doing? 
besides gaming because it is clearly push-ups. Yeah, she has like insta abs at the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, she could be one of those gamers that also do lots of physical activities to to keep their brain working. I mean, it might take a lot of extra oomph to do all those puzzles. Could she be. could be an L-type character who, you know, just burns off of those calories with all the puzzle games. L, I'm actually rereading Death Note right now for mugging your ears, and L played tennis uh, before he was he was like a master genius person, or during his master genius person phase. I don't know. And I mean, the show does go after she pulls it off. She does start having issues with like stamina and strength and whatnot, and they do actually work on her physically. Said, "Hey, yeah, you got lucky, but you're not ready for actual competition." Yeah. And she, like, goes on adrenaline and then, like, crashes. Because there was, a, during the point in the first competition where she reaches so far and then, like, you know, Basil said, um, it just stops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she's like, why can't I move my arms? It's like, well, <laughs> stupid. Yeah, I get it. Like, I guess I've never tried rock climbing, but I have tried, like, climbing a rope in PE and... I cannot do that, or pull-ups in PT, PE, and I cannot do that either, and I assume those are the same or similar muscles that you're using, um, so I I question her ability even, to even do once. I question her ability as to why she even wanted to. Like The, the first episode basically goes, she walks up and sees these people doing it, and is like, oh, hey, I can do that. <laughs> or that looks interesting. I'll do that. It's like, it's different. what the... Yeah, I guess this is a, one of like the key tenets of the show, is that she... Uh, because of her previous master at puzzle games, she sees the wall and is able to immediately discern the f- the best way to climb the wall. Um, so she stands there for an unusual amount of time for rock climbers and analyzes the wall and then climbs it in one go, which is unusual for everyone else because they usually uh, try it, like physically try it, and then fall and then go back up and then fall again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What do they I... call What do they call her analytical skill? Murder observation! Yes! That was my favorite thing about this show. <laughs> I, I really... I also actually really did enjoy watching all the Puyos fill up and actually watching her sort of follow, you know, figure out like a puzzle game. I, I, actually, I did like the visual motif. Yeah, I like the fact that they actually attempted to do something other than just straight uh, visuals with it. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that, was a good, that was a good touch. Yeah, I agree. That was one of my favorite parts of the show, how they incorporated the, uh, her solving the walls as puzzle games. Also, I know that the manga is published by Psy Games, which I feel you know, immediately answers why Gamer Girl, because they make the games. Also, why this also feels like just to the left of an idol anime. <laughs> I mean, kudu kudu kudusu. Uh, I guess this manga is only eight volumes. There was uh, a first part of of the manga that was four volumes long, 2017 to 2019, which I assume is this whole season. I don't know why they wouldn't adapt all of that into one thing. And then the second manga is Iwakakiru Try a New Climbing, uh, next four volumes ongoing. Is anybody else kind of flummoxed by the fact that this is directed by the same person who did Shiki? I could not look up the director, but what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what he could have possibly, or what they could have possibly done with it, because it's just an adaptation, but it does not feel good. <laughs> it definitely does not feel like cheeky good. I mean, this is also one of the directors of Macross 7. <laughs> uh, 
but gosh, what were your, uh, what were both of your just general impressions of the show now that, that we've talked about several very in-depth parts of the show? Basil? I, I think I might have came off the most positive of us three. I, I actually pretty well enjoyed it. I didn't, it, it's not going, it's, is it Ace of Diamond? Lords, no. It's only, it might be, you know, a chi out of a chi hayafaru, but it, it was entirely pleasant, and I kept being surprised. I was waiting, and you get the moments where it gets really fan service out of nowhere, but so many times they could have taken a terrible camera angle to show things off, and they chose not to. So many times this show just isn't as horny as I thought it was going to be, which I just found fascinating. Yeah, well, definitely second that. It's uh, there, there were there were of course the moments where you're kind of looking to look because you you're just expecting it. You you know they're they're sprawled up against a wall and they're stretching you know to reach the next hold. So it's it's perfect opportunity and excuse for the camera just to get right up on in there and it never does or very seldom does in a in a lewd manner. And, uh, you know, I, I had to give a little golf clap almost every episode for going, <laughs> way to not suck this episode, but in that manner. Uh, and there were, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think I found anything really like there, it was nothing I would tune in to watch if I weren't so vested in trying to, or in hoping that this would be a bad anime. Uh, otherwise I would have been like, ho hum from the first couple episodes and dropped it. But, uh, it, it keeps adding little bits here and there that were at least interesting. And really, if it had just gone whole hog wild with, like, foot shoe salesman woman, <laughs> like, if it had kept that tone throughout the entire thing, I thought it would be great. And, like, bunny girl spider woman. Um, <laughs> like, she was amazing. And the, the constant cat girl pun thing is kind of a standard, but... The uh, the idol thing. I, I wanted more just off the wall, off the wall goofy combatants um, to make this like full on shonen, uh, but with rock climbing girls. Because why not? But it never really quite hit peak insanity, and <laughs> went more with like melodrama and internal drama. And yeah, it was just like eh. Yeah, like the wildest that we get is the Spider Girl and the Kurusu Idol Girl. Um, there are a couple really out there characters, which I think is kind of typical for these kinds of things. Like they just grasp on to something that is really, really weird as opposed to developing character in any sort of way. I, I really enjoyed the Prince like character who was one of the aces for another team. And she was able to pull off this really great Prince like persona, but she was also dumb as rocks. And so she has this little mini character arc where she's freaking out because she doesn't feel she should be this princely character because she's not as smart as everyone else only for them to find out. Yeah, we know you're dumb. That's why we love you. She's like, ah, now I can be a badass. Vince. I do not remember this at all. Yeah. I'm drawing a blank on who this was myself. Oh, she, she was like the white hair. Like she was like the, I think the leopard was the nickname they gave her. She was the one that could actually conquer all the client by pretty much like pure upper body strength. I vaguely remember this character. Uh, I think the other part of the person on her team was the girl who kind of talked like she was out of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, where oh, she had the yeah. really uh, 
uh, hoity-toity, like, old, like, ye old uh, speech patterns, mm-hmm. which I only remember because of Jellyfish Princess had a character really into that time period, so she would many times talk like that. So I was able to, like, oh, that's what you're going for. Okay. Yeah. I mean, overall, I think this show, um, it's maybe closer to, like, the Kaon oeuvre of, uh, of Moe Girls doing stuff, as opposed to... Uh, well, I don't remember any like extremely egregiously horny ones, but it's not—it's not really that gall. I don't remember. Uh, going back to an earlier point, I don't really remember anything really terrible, especially when they had the opportunity when they were climbing the walls. Um, I mean, they are kind of wearing very skimpy outfits, but like I don't know if that's typical for rock climbing. Uh, I'd imagine. I mean, like I—I've never watched rock climbing either, and after watching this anime, I really don't want to watch rock climbing. <laughs> I think it would be, honestly, something that would be fun to try. Um, but, you know, uh, from watching it, I don't really find any faults with the outfits. They're skin tight, but they're like spandex climbing yeah, things. Yeah, the kind of I mean, things that you would expect an athlete to wear. Yeah. And usually when they show, like, the really crazy camera angle that show things off, it's also usually to pr- be pronounced of just how weird and twisty they look, not so much to be enticing or, or lewd or anything. It's just like, oh, geez, yeah, all right, okay. Although you do get lots and lots of abs, just like out of nowhere sometimes. Fault, <laughs> you need a lot of abs. Anyone else was thinking Attack on Titan, you know? <laughs> no? You mean the woman Titan? Uh, no, it was one of the original characters, uh, Mikasa, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was originally drawn like with you know, eight-pack abs. I think I remember this. I haven't watched Attack on Titan in forever since it... The manga co was like all Nazi. <laughs> oh, didn't hear. No, that was uh, that was in the original manga, and I think I don't think the anime did as much uh, abbing with that. But uh, hmm. anyway, that's but it. this show sure does. Oh yeah, it, it, it like it lacks its abs as much as it has the one lady who's like, yes, put your foot on my face so I can choose your best shoes. <laughs> oh my God. And then later on, she's like, oh yeah, I'm really glad I. Put your foot on my face. I chose you some pretty darn good shoes. <laughs> anime is so weird. It's, uh, yeah, I don't think I disliked it. I don't think I really liked it. Um, these are the weirdest and hardest things to talk about because it was just there. And the uh, characters did not have, like, I guess Konami had a lot of development, um, but everyone else was kind of in service of her. I don't know about that entirely. I mean, June had her own... Uh, decently major arc like she at least had a couple of episodes dedicated for her because comedy kind of came in like out of nowhere it was in fact pretty badass and after her first big showing out everyone's like holy who who is this person and i think she did so well she inadvertently hurt her team at the same time because was. yeah well i mean because june had a big crisis of conscience of like this girl just walked in and was way better than I was. What? I'm supposed to be really good. <laughs> Maybe I'm terrible. And she has a crisis of faith. And it takes cat want to be cat girl lady to be like, no, you're 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 pretty darn good yourself. You're my rival. Get it together. So I don't know. I think some of the other characters got a little bit of growth, but it, the focus definitely is Konami. I don't know. For me, this show really felt like. I, I saw the side games like because it feels like there's a lot of like SS rank girls in this show, and but they never put a game to it. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's just this anime and manga. Yeah. I guess Nonoka also gave up a bit of an arc, too, where she had failed previously in whatever competition they were at. She was very upset about that, obviously, but she like went through a whole training arc with the president to be able to make up for that. Uh, I did like the staging of the events. It just people listening to the crowds cheer on one person at a time, not being able to see the walls, which made great sense to me. Uh, but I, I like the sort of tension that built up. To you guys' point about um, being in one service to one to one person, uh, Konami, um, she goes on pretty early in the in the initial trials, and she like sweeps the trials. Sorry, spoiler. Um, <laughs> with her, you know, murder vision or whatever it is, um, and you get to watch everyone kind of freak out about it, including her teammates, because you know her like her sudden aptitude for this is all of a sudden this huge wall to climb over for them, too. Uh, it's like, oh, well, we can't let the newbie beat us like this readily, so we've got to go prove our stuff. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a decent decent way of showing tension within the group due to uh, a, a great addition to the group. Yeah. I mean, there's only 12 episodes, so there's only so much complexity that you really want to go into while having a complete narrative. And I guess they... That is an experience. There is. It's based on an ongoing manga, but it does have like this complete narrative that's pretty satisfying overall, uh, at least in the context of the show. It goes so fast too. Okay, yeah. I, I I'm so used to like sports anime with more tension drawn drawn out through each match or whatever. But I guess if you're climbing a wall, you don't want a wall climb to last thirty <laughs> chapters. <laughs> yeah, that probably be be bad and. Especially when one of the walls is a speed wall. Yeah. And they're supposed to be, like, some of them are supposed to be climbed in, like, 15 seconds or whatever, so that's speed walls. You know, you could have all that introspection happen, and then, like, a second tick by. <laughs> <laughs> Half a step made. Like, I would totally do that just to piss off fans of the manga. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, would they actually have the rock climbing... It's not just our main characters. There's like a whole, again, a fleet of SSR ranks that have to do their climbs too. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't have much else to say about the show. Um, but you know, it's all right. I, I I found it very pleasant to watch. I, I I guess I never thought of it in the context of a show like K-On because they do actually climb walls. But it is also overall, I think, a pretty pleasant show. The stakes were never that high, but by and large, like this was the show I kind of looked forward to watching as a nice, just like moment to be like, "All right, they're gonna climb them walls. Good for them." Like, mm-hmm. and with last year being the year that it well continues to be, <laughs> that was a good thing to have. You know, I can kind of get behind that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it provided a good moment to just kind of sit back, eat my lunch. And watch the show about rock climbing. <laughs> Not really do much else think in terms of thinking or interacting with the show. And you know what? Each episode did fly by. That it had no problems with pacing. Nothing ever seemed kind of drawn out. Yeah. All right. So shall we move on to questions? Sure. Let's climb it or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even say that you rock in the pun making department. Oh, no, I definitely tripped and fell early on that one. All right. Um, so questions, you said. Yeah, from, <laughs> <laughs> from 
from your compatriot Inc., Jaylane Nelson. Uh, the fuck is this shit? Shit's an anime about wall climbing. Competitive wall climbing. Done by the females. Yep. That's basically it. <laughs> yep. Uh, question part I B. I don't think I can add to that. Yeah. Question part B. Explain this shit in the form of a tonka poem or haiku. Inc., I leave it to you. Ah, oh, fuck. I didn't read these things beforehand. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I need time to do this. <laughs> Alright, I'll leave you to be Jared. Scroll through the Taiku likes. Um, Alright, so, from Wandering Dreamer, she thought this was a screenshot from Basquatch at first. We're gonna watch Basquatch for the podcast later. Uh, we'll see if that's true. I don't, so down. I mean, Basquatch, Basquatch is a weird show that starts off extremely horny. Like, extremely. Like, it was off-putting at first. But then I think they lost that director and suddenly became much more manageable as far as that goes. And again, this show just never... Re- I mean, it sort of reaches the heights, but rarely. See, it's funny because I've heard the exact opposite, where the it starts off really super good, and then they lost the director, and then it just sort of lost its way. And I, I have enjoyed the first... Uh, I've, I haven't finished it yet, but I have enjoyed the first disc or two that I saw, and uh, I gotta push on with the rest of it, and I'll do so for this podcast, because I really want to talk about <laughs> that. I I felt that it just became like Macross Jr., but also had robots playing basketball. So they wear sneakers, too, like real sneakers. Yeah, yeah, like, mm-hmm. like Nike was a partner, like they designed it. Oh, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, right. I love Basquatch, don't get me wrong. Like, it's an awesome show, I really enjoy it. I need to actually buy the Blu-rays at some point, if I can find them. But, uh, those first few episodes, dude was just, man, Anyways. All right. So, from the sommelier, how tall are the ladies being climbed? There are zero ladies being climbed. There are walls being climbed by ladies. Although you know in later episodes. No? After they get Studio Wit to join in and actually, like, you know, get some Titans. Yeah, I could see it. (laughs) Maybe they will uh, climb the woman Titan in an episode. All right. So, uh, last question from Gerald Radio Most unintentionally horny anime? Count the number of abs, camel toe, and feet shot and tell me otherwise. Untrue. Yeah, they're definitely more unintentionally horny anime. I I really think what Gerald had was just like the weird reverse of what we were thinking. Where I think I wonder if he went in just thinking a normal sports anime, because if you think of like a normal sports anime, okay, yeah, it has some moments. Whereas I think we went into it like, all right, let's see what they do. Oh, that's for what we were expecting. This is incredibly tasteful. Yeah, true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like, there is the moment of, again, foot on the face girl, and then there was the moment where Idol, like, coulda, coulda, you know, you know, cool girl, you know, gets on up in Konami's face, like, when they're both in the shower, as she's trying to provoke this up-and-comer, who I think she feels is an actual threat, and she's trying to shut her down now. And, and Konami instead, like, rises to, like, the, you know, the antagonism in the shower. But you know what? I didn't even find that. Yeah, you know, like you, like you said, like, I, I didn't even find that like a leering sort of thing as I remember. As I remember it anyway, because as soon as it went into the shower, I was like, ah, here we go. And then I was just like, oh, you're not gonna treat it like a leer fest, okay? Yeah, I mean, I think the <laughs> issue there is just like they're doing it in the shower at all, which is very weird. Just do it after the shower. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I assume that it was in the shower because she wanted them to be alone. Like, kuda kuda, you know, girl, she certainly feels like she's got this public persona that she has to keep up 100% of the time. 
But in order to properly antagonize her main character, she needed them to be in a place where no one else would be around. And I guess that's what the shower was for. Yeah, I mean, you do see that when she's falling from the wall after failing to sing it, which is climbing all the way to the top, um, which I learned from this anime, uh, where she is facing the wall and she's just kind of looking angry and then she turns around and she turns on her persona again. Which brings me to my other question of how big is rock climbing really? Like she is able to have this many people uh, supering to her her persona and rock climbing to chant her name while she climbs climbs the rocks. I mean, climbs the wall. So my own personal theory was she was a wannabe idol and then she discovered the miracle of rock climbing and went, no, I don't want the super fame that comes with idol worship. I want the I want to be the biggest fish in the smallest pool. So I'm going to go to, to sports cr- sports climbing and whip up my already enraged fans and then I just bring this massive momentum behind me and I'll be the best and the coolest there. Just written season three of Love Live. Season four of Love Live. I will leave you my <laughs> suicide note. Alright. Alright, here right. here we go. Girls claim rocks real good. They also <laughs> like puzzle games. Fan service tasteful. Bravo. Bravo. Yes, very good for the time allotted. Alright, so, do anyone else have anything else before I close out this episode? I don't get the the monkey rock, or the, the people they meet with the monkey rock, the person who becomes the understudy for Konami, and the hot dad, the hot walk like they're, they're just there for no reason at all. None. You can take them out, and it would be the same story. I completely forgot about hot dad. I really wonder if he became like more important, or he was placed to eventually become their coach if the manga kept going. Seems likely. Because his daughter was definitely, because she was introduced, I think, someone to, A, I think to become a character later on in the show. Like Eventually, I think she would join the team. But they introduced her early on as a person who's really good at bouldering, but someone for Konami to interact with who also liked puzzle games. I think that was a different way of them trying to pull that together. Yeah, and she's on your high school age as well. Right. I, yeah, I imagine that she would join the team eventually. Maybe her dad becomes a coach, as you are, you all were saying. It's y'all. Y'all. all Oh, Basil, teach him something. <laughs> now look, <laughs> just because I live in the same state as Jared, I don't have quite a, as good of a nice southern gentleman draw as he does. <laughs> and that shames me to this day. <laughs> he, no one can no one can do the draw like Jared. That's why I keep him around. Alright, let's close out this episode. Where can we find you both on the internet? Flip you for it. I think he introduced you first, so therefore you should go first. Sound logic. Uh, you can find me over at anagamers.com uh, I co-host the old Taku No Radio podcast with the aforementioned Jared Nelson and you can check out some back issues of Otaku USA magazine I'm in there with uh, some features and reviews and you can find me on the Tweety Box at Animated Inc and if you really want to read about Galgun 2 I just posted a first review in a long time over at Anagamers so go ahead and read that I was really hoping that would be about Kangagawa Jack Girls game I am not buying that game even though I like racing games and I probably would Enjoy that. <laughs> Basil? I also want to point out that the hot dad character 
is also voiced by the same guy that does Toga from Utena. So I'm really glad he's been able to successfully move on from voicing hot young dudes to awesome hot old dudes. <laughs> there you go. That I feel is very important. In fact, if we could just get a voice kreutz of just them as like 50, 60-year-old hot dudes doing stuff, arranging flowers and killing folks, I would be on board for that. <laughs> so if you want more of my brand of thoughts... You can find me at the Awesome Cast, your podcast for everything awesome, O-S-M-C-A-S-T dot com. Or you can find me on Twitter at It's Basil Time. The Awesome Cast, we also just opened up our Discord. So if you'd like to hit, a, hit up a Discord that you want to talk with cool people with cool thoughts like Voice Christ but with old dudes, find us there. Great. You can find me on Twitter at Impassionate You can find this podcast on Twitter. Aktaiku Podcast. It's T-A-I-I-K-U. You can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com um, where... Uh, nope, you can't find that there. Uh, on the Twitter, you can find a link to merchandise as well. Done uh, logo design by Basil. Yeah, get a shirt. They look awesome. I just got mine the other day, and I cannot wait to wear it. If only we had I'm places to go. <laughs> <laughs> My house will be fine. <laughs> I'm telling you that that on the on the purple background that logo pops like crazy. So good, like it's so good on any background, but I love it on the purple. All right, thank you both for coming on. Basically, Basil, thank you for the logo and for the now really cool looking merch. My pleasure. We gave them all the .moe domain names. <laughs> God, uh, that really would be strike witches. <laughs> I hate this podcast. <laughs> and we haven't technically even started. <laughs> anyway, shall we get started? I mean, I'm sure. Down. All right.